Hello, my name is Mishi Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Welcome to episode 8. Hello, I'm Officer Roseland. On today's episode, Ted Bundy is still just fucking YOLOing in Utah. Not one, not two, but three women unfortunately cross his path. The cops somehow get even worse. Like, way worse, guys. So just be prepared to possibly scream. Liz is still going through it. She's a ride or die for some reason. So as always, trigger warning for gratuitous violence, sexual assault, necrophilia, pedophilia. Ted Bundy's a, he's a piece of shit. So trigger warning. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, buckle up. It's a wild ride from start to finish. Let's get into it. Laura Amy was nearly six feet tall and had long brown hair parted down the middle. The Amys lived in an aging farmhouse in Mount Pleasant, Utah, surrounded by quiet farmlands. They kept hogs, horses, turkeys, chickens, goats, cows, dogs, apparently cats by the dozen, (laughs) sheep, and almost every other kind of farm animal. They even kept peacocks for a while. The farm was surrounded by mountains, some of them reaching 11,000 foot peaks. On every horizon, they could look out and see a beautiful vista. Once, when a wild deer ventured down out of the canyon, Laura left food for it and eventually made this deer her pet. So she's like Snow White Cinderella moments. With the news of the abduction and murder of Melissa Smith, daughter of Midvale Police Chief, still dominating the press, Laura's mother, Shirlene, worried about Laura's propensity to hitchhike. In a late October telephone conversation, her mother said, Laura, I really would appreciate it if you'd promise to not hitchhike anymore. I know this sounds like nagging, but I just don't want you taking any chances. I don't want you going with anyone you don't know. Laura promised her mother she would be careful. They said their goodbyes, and Laura promised to call or visit the house in a few days. A few days went by, and Laura didn't call. On the night of her disappearance, Laura had gone to a Halloween party at a house in the suburbs of Orem, Utah, less than 10 miles north of the American Fort Canyon. According to witnesses, Laura left the party alone around midnight and planned to hitchhike. She was last seen wearing blue jeans, a sweater, and a navy peacoat. Laura's family grew concerned of her disappearance when Laura failed to show up for a hunting trip planned with her father. This is something Laura would have never missed. She loved hunting with her dad. Five days after Laura had last been seen, her mother Charlene called the police. Look, lady, came the officer's tired response. What are we supposed to do about it? Do you know how many runaway girls we have in Utah County? There's no way we could put out a report on every one of them. Why don't you put an ad in the paper? Suck a fucking dick. Seriously. What are we supposed to do about it? Your goddamn jobs. What are we supposed to do about it? Also, for him to immediately categorize Laura as a runaway? Bitch, this is why Ted Bundy got away with so many of these murders for so long because of inadequate pieces of shit like this who don't want to do their motherfucking jobs. There's no way we could put out a report on every one of them. Then why are you there? What are you doing? Just sitting there with your dick in your hands, collecting a fucking pension, being in a union, not doing your job? Trash. Fucking trash. Like, insane. I, I hope this person feels an immense amount of guilt about this because this is fucking bullshit. <sighs> So in The Deliberate Stranger, Richard Larson shares a few anecdotes that elicit the kind of fuck-ups made by police at the time that made it so easy for someone like Ted Bundy to literally get away with murder. He writes, Maria Ackley, a Seattle writer and photographer, became concerned when she noticed that her pretty young shopping companion was being followed by a strange man with his arm in a sling. Mrs. Ackley watched the man follow her friend, who was an out-of-town visitor, from place to place in Seattle's Pike Place Market and concluded he looked exactly like the Ted in all those police sketches circulating in the newspapers. 
unnoticed, she ran to a telephone in the market and called 911. When the Seattle Police Department operator answered, Mrs. Ackley said, I'm at the Pike Place Market and there's a strange man here. He has his arm in a sling and he's following a young woman. He looks exactly like that Ted guy you're looking for. Can you please send a policeman here right away? The police operator told her that no officer was available at the moment. And besides, she was told the Ted case was a King County's case, not Seattle's. What the fuck? So she hung up and from that payphone, she frantically watched the man still stalking her friend from place to place in the market. And she quickly called her husband, Norman Ackley, a King County Superior Court judge, go off sis. A bailiff summoned the judge to the telephone. And when he heard his wife's story, the judge recessed court, summoned a detective and drove to the market. However, by the time they arrived, the man with his arm in the sling had disappeared into the crowd of shoppers. This apparently took place right before Ted Bundy left for Utah. Could have saved lives. This isn't a King County's case, Seattle's. So then bitch fucking put her through to Seattle. She called 911. Like, oh, this isn't our problem. It's fucking trash. Fucking trash. Richard Larson also recounts that in October 1974, a man named Al Bricker and his son had been riding motorcycles in the mountainside near the Issaquah area where those bones were found. And along a power line road heavily used by motorcyclists and Jeep drivers, Bricker noticed a cardboard box, which had been placed surreptitiously in a way to kind of hide it underneath a small maple tree. Bricker parked his bike and with his son went to investigate its contents. Also, again, some white people shit because my black ass would have been like, oh, none of my business, but it's a good thing he did this. Give him his flowers. So on top and the inside of this box were women's blouses, pants, and a swimsuit. If you remember, Janice Ott was last seen wearing a swimsuit. Let's not touch anything, Bricker told his son. Bricker had read the news that some murdered girls had been found near Issaquah a month ago and police were looking for their clothing as possible clues. Not far away from that maple shrub and this cardboard box, Bricker and his son discovered a brown paper bag which contained, neatly folded, several white cotton bras. Beneath the bras were a collection of women's underwear. Come on, let's get to the police, Bricker said. Within an hour, Bricker and his son left a message with the King County Police that he wished to speak to a detective. When days passed and there was no response, he tried again. His messages to the police went unanswered. Bricker returned to the site and he found the cardboard box and the bag had been smashed, the contents scattered and buried in the mud by tires of passing motorbikes. Damn it, he grumbled. What kind of law enforcement have we got here anyway? Why wouldn't they at least come take a look? Neither Bricker nor the police knew it at the time, but his discovery had been made within a few hundred yards of Taylor Mountain, a site where the remains of some murdered girls would lie in the woods for months before being discovered. On Friday, November 8th, 1974, around 5 p.m., 17-year-old Carol Durant drove to the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah to purchase a gift. By coincidence, she ran into her cousin Joanne, who also happened to be there shopping with a friend. She stopped to chat for a bit with her cousin before carrying on with her shopping. Carol later told investigators that after she paused to check out a cat book, yes, Carol, in the window display of Walden Books, she was approached by an individual she described as being between five foot seven and six feet tall with long, thick, dark brown, oily hair. This man had a neatly trimmed mustache, appeared well-groomed, was good-looking, again, and wore a jacket and necktie. This man introduced himself to Carol as Officer Roseland. Excuse me, miss, did you just park your car out in the parking lot? She said yes, because where else would she have parked her car at the mall? He said, we have a problem out in the parking lot. We think there's been an attempted burglary of your car. I'd appreciate it if you would go out with me to your car to identify a suspect my partner's holding out there. Carol said okay. And apparently, because Carol was extremely shy, she had a tendency to avoid looking older people directly in the eye. So she didn't study this man's face, but as they walked toward the exit to the parking lot, she noticed that this Officer Roseland was wearing patent leather shoes. He escorted Carol out of the mall into the misty, dimly lit parking lot. They got to her car and Carol noticed that it was still locked. Everything looks okay to me, she said. There was nothing to indicate that someone had just tried to break into her car. 
Even so, this Officer Roseland asked Carol to open the driver's side door so he could inspect the vehicle for himself. She did what she was told, unlocked the door and opened it. It looked just the fucking same as it did through the window. So Officer Roseland then asked Carol to now open the passenger side door. She told him no, it wasn't necessary because her car looked fine, because it was. Kevin Sullivan writes, It was no coincidence that Ted Bunny wanted her to open the passenger door. He knew there was nothing wrong with her car, and he knew Carol knew it too. It's very likely he planned to have Carol climb inside so he could immediately attack her. Richard Larson writes, When the man leaned forward to look into the car, Carol noticed he carried handcuffs in an inner pocket of his jacket. My partner must have taken the suspect over to the sub-office, he said. We'll have to go over there. Carol accompanied Officer Roseland back into the lights of the mall, across the flow of shoppers, and through another doorway. Outdoors again, they did some fucking meandering where they walked along the mall and then under a street light and they crossed streets and took her on a fucking journey. And then finally, Officer Roseland says, the sub-office is right over there. He nodded toward a small building ahead of them. Beneath one exterior light on that building, Carol saw an inconspicuous door that bore the number 139. Carol waited at the sidewalk as he walked to the door and unsuccessfully tried to open it. It's locked. I guess we're going to have to drive over to headquarters, he said. Carol wasn't aware that the door he had tried to open was the side door of a laundromat. Carol said, he looked nice, presented himself well, and was calm and in no way suggested himself to be anything other than a police officer. At this point, Carol and Officer Roseland had been walking together for more than 10 minutes. He led her along a darkened sidewalk until they came to a Volkswagen. Here's my car, he said, opening the passenger door for her. Get in. It was dark, but through a dim street lamp, Carol observed that it was a pretty shitty car for a cop to be driving. Although she was nervous and easily intimidated by authority, Carol summoned the courage to ask to see his police identification. With a light, condescending fucking chuckle, he flashed his police badge, and in the darkness, she could barely see it, but she was satisfied by what she saw. Later, she told an investigator that she wasn't sure if the badge was gold or silver in color, and she was unable to look at it closely because he like flashed it really fast before he put it away. As Carol got into the Volkswagen, she saw a tear along the top of the backseat upholstery. Once again, she thought it was a shitty car for a cop to be driving. Officer Roseland slid into the driver's seat and told Carol, Buckle up your safety belt. I'm a real nut on safety. Okay, bitch. Now sitting so close together in his car, Carol thought she smelled alcohol on his breath. Carol looked down and saw that the seatbelt was crumpled and dirty, which is fucking disgusting. And so she refused to put it around her. Like, that's how dirty it was. She's sitting in the fucking front passenger seat and was like, I'm not touching that. Officer Roseland then started the shitty Volkswagen with the tear in the back seat and the dents and the splotches on the paint and the fucking crumpled, crusty, dirty seatbelt and then sent it lurching into a sharp U-turn. I'm just imagining like... So he sent it lurching into this sharp U-turn and then across the street. He made a quick stop at the first intersection and then turned left. Then, out of fucking nowhere, he slammed on the brakes, swerved to the right, and stopped the Volkswagen so that the right side of the car was like up on the curb in front of a darkened school building. He grabbed Carol's arm and snapped a handcuff onto her wrist. She lurched back and started screaming, what are you doing? What are you doing? The man replied, shut up or I'll blow your head off and grabbed her other wrist. Carol is now terrified and is screaming and flailing and trying to get away from this fucking psycho. And because she's thankfully putting up such a fight, this man accidentally clicks the second handcuff onto the same wrist. So she's not bound. Still screaming her fucking head off, Carol scrambles for the door, opens it, and fell out backwards out of the parked car. The man lunged across the seat at her. Carol looked up in time to see a metal bar in his hand, raised above his head, ready to strike her down. Carol, this goddamn literal legend, grabbed the metal bar, which probably was a tire iron because that's what he used to attack his victims, and deflected the blow. Then she bolted up, screaming, tripping, scrambling, ran around to the back of the car and into the street, into the headlights of an approaching vehicle. Richard Larson writes, 
When the running girl loomed into the headlights, Harold Walsh slammed into the brakes. For an instant, his wife Mildred was afraid to open the door and let her in. But the girl was obviously terrified. And the next moment, Carol had opened the door. She fell into their car, collapsing in Mildred's arms, trembling violently. The older woman could feel the girl's heart pounding as she whimpered and sobbed. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. What? What's wrong? asked Mildred. I can't believe it, Carol sobbed. He tried to kill me. I can't believe it. In that instant of confusion, the Walshes didn't see the Volkswagen pull away from the opposite side of the curb in the darkness. They took Carol to the Murray City Police Department headquarters. It took a while for Carol's nerves to calm down enough so she could describe what happened to her. Sergeant Joel Wright was called in to interview Carol. The officer sensed when he first saw her that something awful must have happened. Carol could not stop trembling or crying. He noticed that she had even lost one of her shoes in the scuffle. There were some flecks of blood on the white fur trim of her coat. The officer wondered if maybe she scratched the man while she fought him off in the Volkswagen. He decided to clip some of those blood specks for possible evidence. And now you would think that just having attacked someone who got away, that Ted Bundy or Officer Roseland would lay low. No, this stupid bitch went out looking for another victim. Like immediately went out looking for another victim because he was a fucking animal. So within minutes, Ted Bundy entered on the ramp of Interstate 15 and headed north. He changed into a second set of clothes that he just casually happened to have with him and was on the prowl for yet another victim. While Carol Durant was being interviewed by the Murray police, 30 minutes away at Beaumont High School in Bountiful, Utah, yes, I said high school, because please remember that this stupid bitch was a fucking pedophile. So at this high school... Students and their families were settling in to enjoy a production of a play called The Redhead, presented by the students of, again, Beaumont High School. Ted Bundy was a pedophile. So Ted Bundy arrives, and no longer disguised as a police officer, he got out of his car and walked through the front doors of Beaumont High School. And remember, he literally just tried to abduct someone who got away, and rather than go home get the hell out of town, do anything, this dumb bitch went to a high school to look for another victim. Make it make sense. And he knew this play was going on because later a flyer for this play was found in his possession. So he knew to be at the high school this late at night prowling for fucking victims because he what is a fucking pedophile. Fuck this bitch. At this point, 17-year-old Debbie Kent, a pretty brunette with long brown hair parted down the middle, was sitting in the auditorium with her parents. The Kent family was celebrating because Dean Kent, her father, had just recovered from a severe heart attack, and to celebrate, they scheduled this play as his first outing since his heart attack. Yeah, the trauma. I would become an agoraphobe and never leave the house again. Debbie's younger brother, Blair, was at the roller skating rink in the family plant to pick him up at 10 o'clock when the play ended. Unfortunately, the play didn't begin at 8 p.m. as scheduled. 24-year-old drama teacher Raylan Shepard, who had long dark brown hair parted in the middle, would later tell police of how she was approached by a strange yet handsome young man. Excuse me, he said, but could you come out to the parking lot and try to identify a car for me? She told the man no because she was busy and didn't have time to help him. She excused herself and left to help the cast of the play. Raylan told police that this man was a good dresser and wore patent leather shoes. So the drama teacher Raylan took care of her duties with her students and as she headed back toward the auditorium, she saw the man again still standing in the hallway like a fucking weirdo. And to be polite, she asked the man if he had found anyone to help him. However, instead of answering her, like a fucking creep, he just stared at her as she walked by. And now I'm going to read to you uh, Raylan Shepard's handwritten, she has a really good script too, but her handwritten account of what happened that she then gave to the police. She said, I got to school for the musical at 7.30 p.m., seated my husband in the auditorium, and started around the corner to the dressing rooms. I think it was about 7.45 at the time. The hall was dark, but I could see fairly well. A man who was standing alone halfway down the hall approached me as I walked toward the dressing rooms. 
He said, excuse me, but could you come out to the parking lot and try to identify a car for me? I said I was busy and asked if he needed any help. If so, I would try to find somebody for him. He said, it'll only take a few seconds. I just need to find out whose car this is. I said, I'm sorry, and went to the dressing rooms. His attitude really bugged me as I told my husband that night. I had been in the dressing room approximately half an hour or so when I came back down the hall to return to the auditorium. At this point, it was about 8.15 to 8.30. I was by myself and he was still standing approximately in the same place. I said, hi, did you find anybody yet? He didn't say one word, but just stared at me all the way down the hall. I watched the play until I was supposed to help with a costume change about 20 minutes later. I started back down the hall, my third trip, and again, he was there. He started coming toward me and said, hey, um, you look really nice. I said, thanks. He said, are you sure you couldn't help me out with this car? It'll only take a few seconds. I said, I'm in a hurry right now, but my husband might be able to help. He said, by the way, and got way too close to me. Do you know if Brent Olson is around here? I asked if he was a member of the cast or just a student. and He said, it's no big deal. I was just wondering if you knew him. I left fast. At the intermission at approximately 9.20 to 9.30 or so, I was standing by the front doors of the auditorium when he walked to the far west door and went out. I thought he was a real creep at the time because he didn't even watch the show. I went in the auditorium and sat down at the back of the row on the aisle seat. At about 10.35, he came in the door to the rear of me, bent over the back divider for about 30 seconds, and then sat down straight across the aisle from me. His hair was messed up and he was breathing hard enough that the people in front of him turned around to look back at him. He stayed about three to five minutes and on the last curtain call, got up and left through the front doors. He was approximately 34 to 36 years of age, about 6'1 and 185 pounds. He had a nice physique, well-muscled legs and flat stomach. He had a large mustache, thick and ended one inch above his chin. His hair was dark brown, thick, and about three inches long. It stood out from his head. He was olive complexion with nice skin. He had large round eyes, long eyelashes, and thick arched eyebrows. He was, in my opinion, very good looking. He was wearing patent leather shoes, a dark color light trousers, colored shirt, and dark sports coat. So naturally, since the play did not begin on time, it didn't end at the expected time of 10 o'clock. Debbie Kent volunteered to leave the play early to pick up her brother from the roller skating rink so her parents could stay and enjoy the rest of their evening. Debbie said she would drive the family car to pick him up. I'll be back to get you, she whispered to her parents. When the play finally did end, Dean and Belva Kent waited for their daughter to return with her brother. After waiting longer than expected, her father walked to the parking lot only to find that the family car was still there, right where they left it at the start of the play. It appeared that Debbie never reached the car. He knew his daughter well enough to know at once that something was wrong. Debbie's mother said she just wouldn't have left us stranded. Her father's just getting over a heart attack and the car is still there in the school lot. It doesn't make sense. Her parents called the Bountiful Police Department and that night the search for Deborah Kent began. Searches were conducted around the area of the school, drive-ins, and they searched along some of the main streets of town and even the fields near the Kent family home. The next morning, the search intensified. Near the high school building, one of the volunteer searchers found a key on the ground of the parking lot. An officer recognized it immediately as a handcuff key. The search grew, and even the citizens of the town joined the efforts to help the police conduct a block-by-block -block search of Bountiful, Utah. Richard Larson writes, the search spread to the surrounding fields, farmlands, and side roads. ATVs were used to search foothills and canyons. Helicopters were used for aerial searches. Sergeant Ira Beale and other officers covered hundreds of square miles around Bountiful, Utah by air. Back at the Bountiful Police Department headquarters, Officer Ballantine was on the phone with Sergeant Paul Forbes of the Murray Police Department. So Carol Durant was assaulted at the mall in Murray, Utah, and Debbie Kent was abducted from Bountiful, Utah. A lot's going on because Ted Bundy, that stupid hoe, just couldn't fucking go to school. He couldn't go to class. He just had to be murdering people. So together, these two officers were like, oh shit, what a coinkydink. Carol Durant escaped from an attempted kidnapping slash murder that same day and showed up at the police station with a pair of handcuffs dangling from her fucking wrist. And then what do you know? 
Just a few hours later, a handcuff key was found where Debbie Kent was last known to be, in the high school parking lot. Huh. Interesting. Bountiful detectives Ira Beale and Ron Ballantine took the handcuff key to the Murray Police Department and placed it into the lock of the handcuffs removed from Carol Durant. And huh, what do you know? It worked. So some of these officers knew that handcuff keys were interchangeable. They tried the key on one of the police department's own Smith & Wesson handcuffs, but it didn't work. They knew that this key would probably work on several brands of small handcuffs. And because this key could possibly be used for several other handcuffs, it could not be considered positive physical evidence to link the two cases. But it was still fucking terrifying. Some psycho had attempted to kidnap Carol Durant, failed, and then continued to successfully abduct Deborah Kent. Shit is getting real. Shit is getting real. (laughs) Ted Bundy's in Utah. Shit is getting real. (laughs) Like, oh my God. (sighs) Richard Larson writes, In Salt Lake City, detectives of Bountiful, Murray, and Salt Lake County met to review their cases. Salt Lake County detectives Jerry Thompson and Ben Forbes, who were working on the October murder of Melissa Smith, had a hunch they might all be looking for the same man. These cases are all different, said Thompson. We've got a murdered girl, a missing girl, and a girl who got away from a guy. But there are some similarities. The victims were all young, brunette, and pretty, noted Thompson, and each girl wearing her long hair parted in the middle resembled the others. Another teenager of the same description was also missing. Nancy Wilcox, a pretty high school cheerleader, had disappeared from the Salt Lake City area in early October as well. But Salt Lake County juvenile authorities had jurisdiction over that case and considered Nancy a runaway. Nancy had argued with her parents before her disappearance, so yeah, she ran away. Nancy Wilcox is the young woman who Ted Bundy abducted, dragged into an orchard and, quote, tried to only rape, not kill her but 100% murdered her because he's a fucking monster. The officers of the Bountiful and Murray Police Departments compared descriptions of the Officer Roseland, who tried to abduct Carol Durant, with the description given to them by the drama teacher of Umont High School. They determined it could have been the same man. In The Stranger Beside Me, Anne Rule writes, Police learned that a man who had arrived at Beaumont High School to pick up his daughter after the play reported he had seen an old beat-up Volkswagen, a light-colored bug, racing from the parking lot just after 10.30 on the night of November 8th, the night Carol Durant was attacked and Debbie Kent disappeared. The investigators didn't know about the Halloween night disappearance of Laura Amy because the Utah County Sheriff's Office dismissed her as a runaway. Remember they told her mom, put out an ad in the paper. What do you want us to do? Yeah, yeah. So Laura Amy's case was not discussed at this giant summit of the Utah authorities coming together. It flew under the radar. And yeah, stay tuned next episode. It's worse than you think. These people should not be police officers. If you don't want to do your job, go the fuck home. Around 9 a.m. on November 27th, 1974, the day before Thanksgiving, actually, Raymond and Christine, two students of Brigham Young University, were hiking a trail in American Fork looking for rocks and fossils for their geology class. As they walked along the stream, Christine said, Oh God, there's a dead girl over there. <laughs> Have you also clocked that so far, all of these victims were discovered by mistake, by like hikers or hunters or some shit like that. Like not the police, but just random people in the woods for no fucking reason. I believe we should stay out of the woods. That's for the animals. We've already done enough of taking their land. But yeah, it's just been fucking unsuspecting like hikers and all that shit. So this couple who were just out looking for rocks and fossils, they had discovered the strangled remains of Laura and Amy. And trigger warning, guys, please feel free to skip ahead because it ain't pretty. So her body was nude, lying face down, and left just off the hiking trail at the bottom of a hill. Her skull was fractured by a blow from a heavy object, and she was strangled by a stocking that was wrapped tightly around her throat. 
According to an autopsy report, her tongue was protruding through her teeth and her face was badly swollen. In The Deliberate Stranger, Richard Larson writes that Hiker Raymond said, I looked and thought, you know, it was like a deer or something. And it was a girl. It looked like she had been, she was dead. It was really grotesque. There was blood around her neck and breast and she was naked and lying on that hill and it was just a freak out and I lost it. I thought maybe the guy was still somewhere around and I just panicked worrying about my girlfriend and and we just ran down the trail. Came right down straight through the creek, got in the car and drove like a maniac, I guess as fast as I could down to the ranger station and I just reported it. So usually this area was covered with snow by late November. So the discovery of Laura Amy's body had literally been a fucking fluke. Again, not found by the police, found by random people. When Laura's mother, Shirlene, heard about the body found in American Fork, something in her gut told her to call the sheriff's office. This is Laura's mother, she told the officer who answered, I want to know about the body they found in American Fork. Could it be Laura? She was told more than once that the body could not be her daughter's. Investigators had immediately assumed, with no evidence, that the body found belonged to Debbie Kent, the young woman who was abducted after that school play. Debbie Kent's disappearance and the search to find her had completely dominated the news cycle for the past couple of weeks, and none of the officers placed as much value or importance into the disappearance of Laura Amy because they were too focused on another disappearance, which is not fair and not fun and, like, Everyone should be given the same amount of importance. Every case should be given the same amount of weight. But for some fucking reason, they just automatically assumed that Laura had run away, which is fucking incorrect, and just didn't pay attention to it. And they literally found her body and was like, nope, it's not her. Richard Larson writes, That evening, the newspaper carried a photo of Sheriff Holly, a Utah Highway Patrolman, and two forest rangers carrying the shrouded body up and out of the canyon. Charlene had studied the photo and handed the paper over to her husband. Jim, I'm just scared to death. I've got a feeling that's Laura, she said. Well, damn it, Jim said after he examined the photo and the accompanying story. The cops sure in hell must know what they're talking about when they say it isn't Laura. They couldn't make a mistake about that. Laura's a tall girl, almost six feet tall. And right there in the newspaper, her parents were quoting one of the officers saying that there's a real good possibility the body may be that of the bountiful girl who disappeared November 8th from Viewmont High School. Again, referring to Debbie Kent. However, the next day, Charlene received a telephone call from her mother, Laura's grandmother, adamant that she should pick up a copy of another newspaper, the Salt Lake Tribune. In this newspaper, there was a report that the body of the young woman found in American Fork by those hikers had a height and hair color that eliminated the possibility of her being Debbie Kent. So once again, Laura's mother, Charlene, called the sheriff's office and begged to know if the body was that of her daughter, Laura's. The person who answered wasn't sure, but for some reason still told her that the body was that of an older woman and not her daughter, Laura's. Again, how do you know? What test did you do? Fucking trash. <sighs> These poor fucking parents. So an hour later, the sheriff's office called the Amy family requesting that Laura's dental records be turned in. Her mother gave the officers the name of Laura's dentist. The next time the phone rang, it was the sheriff's office again. And this time, they asked her parents to be ready by 10 o'clock that morning to be taken to the morgue to help with an identification. When her parents arrived at the morgue, her father, Jim, said, If it's okay, I want to go in alone. Just me. I don't want my wife to have to go in there. The officer said, Duh, of course that's okay. So Jim walks into the morgue. He looks at the body on the table, and he actually couldn't be sure if it was his daughter because she was so unrecognizable. The damage to her head was so severe that he could not tell whether or not it was Laura. And just as he was about to leave, he had an idea. Jim asked to have this dead girl's arm raised up so he could see the inside of her ring finger and the inside of her forearm. He had remembered that Laura had some scars there after she got thrown from her horse and fell into some barbed wire. And she just had like some faded scars there, but he would be able to determine like if they were there, they're Laura. 
Jim let out what's described as a blood-curdling scream. His wife, Charlene, said, I couldn't believe it had come from a human being. And in that moment, waiting outside the morgue, she knew that their daughter, Laura, had been found. So trigger warning, feel free to please skip ahead. I'm going to uh, read some of the details of the autopsy report about Laura Amy's remains. The autopsy of Laura's body performed by Dr. Moore gave similar results to those performed on Melissa Smith. Laura Amy had depressed skull fractures on the left and backside of her head, and she had been strangled. The necklace she'd worn when she vanished had fused with the nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. She had numerous facial contusions, and her body had deep abrasions where, like on the underside of her where she had been dragged. The weapon used to inflict these skull fractures appeared to have been an iron crowbar or a pry bar which most probably it was a tire iron. Laura had also been sexually assaulted. Years later, her father Jim mentioned to his friend as they drove by the spot where Laura's body was found. He said, my little baby was up there all by herself and there was nothing I could do to help her. While making arrangements for the funeral, her mother Charlene remembered something Laura had said just a few weeks earlier to her. Mother, at my funeral, I don't want to be buried in a dress. Laura, what in the world are you talking about? Charlene said. You've got your whole life ahead of you. I'm serious, mom, said Laura. I don't want to be buried in a dress. At the time, Charlene was confused as to why Laura just randomly brought it up. But now, as she planned her daughter's funeral, she decided that Laura would be buried in a warm flannel nightie and fuzzy slippers. And the death of Laura really took a toll on the Amy family, which of course... Her mother, Charlene, quit her job so that she could stay home and be around the house all the time to protect her other daughters. Her father, Jim, had to check himself into a hospital for treatment for depression, which good for him because a lot of people ignore mental health and it just fucking gets worse. And I do not unfortunately have any updates on him or on this family, but it seems like he at least did seek mental health help. Um, And after several weeks, the Amy family fell prey to stupid and totally avoidable fucking hurdles and obstacles for the investigation of their daughter's death. It was apparently well known that whoever solved Laura's murder was guaranteed to be Utah's next county sheriff, which what the fuck? You shouldn't need some sort of fucking incentive to do your job. Do your job. Why do you have it? You need a fucking reward in order to do your job? Like, come on, why the fuck? So soon, while these grieving parents who, I'm sorry, were calling the police multiple times saying, hey, we can't find our daughter. Oh, she must be a runaway. Put an ad in a paper. Hey, that body you just found, we think it's our daughter. No, it's not. It's someone else. Now, all of a sudden, now that there is some sort of reward for solving this case, there's a benefit to these pieces of fucking garbage. Detectives just start showing up at the house all the fucking time. Could have used them before, but they're here now. So one would show up in the morning, someone in the afternoon, just asking the same fucking questions. And soon, Shirlene learned that Utah County was refusing outright to cooperate with the other jurisdictions that had similar cases. Because remember that giant meeting, the summit that they had? Utah County was purposefully just being like, no. No, we're taking our toy and we're going over here because we want another credit. So it's like you're fucking putting your own foot in your own mouth and like stubbing your own toe for what? Like you're all on the same side. Like you're literally all on the same side. It's so stupid. And this is trash. The last time Charlene showed up at the police station for an interview, the detective had kept her waiting for two hours before she discovered he wasn't even there. He left to go to a lecture at the university instead of meeting with her about her fucking murdered daughter. What the fuck? (sighs) Oh my God. Not, not cool. Like not even not cool. The fucking garbage, dude. If you're listening to this officer, fuck you. Literally jump into a pool with your cell phone, asshole. 
Get a paper cut between your toes. Stub your toe when you get out of bed. Burn the roof of your mouth in a really hot potato. Fucking garbage. So the Amy family moved out of their fucking beautiful idyllic house, probably because it was too traumatizing to be there. And they actually moved to American Fork, the city where their daughter was found. And next door to their new home, coincidentally, lived Carol Durant's aunt, the young woman who escaped Ted Bundy in the Volkswagen. So Charlene and Carol's aunt actually became friends. And one day while they were hanging out, Carol's aunt said, Carol was very, very lucky. That man would have killed her if he got those handcuffs on. Charlene just nodded. And then her aunt said, oh, I'm so sorry. It must be really hard for you to listen to these stories. No shit. No your audience, please. Okay, so just going to time travel to the future. The year is now 1977. Ted Bundy murdered Laura Amy in 1974. But now, in 1977, it's going to read you this anecdote in The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson about Ted Bundy's involvement in the Laura Amy murder. So, Richard Larson writes, Through the months of 1977, a strange political law enforcement feud had been going on. Sheriff Mac Hawley and most of his men had quickly concluded that after Laura Amy's body was found in November 1974, that her death was unrelated to the crimes in neighboring Salt Lake County. And Hawley had pointedly informed the Salt Lake investigators to stay out of his case. Trash. Later, however, Utah County had an aggressive new county attorney, Noel Woodman, who brought into his office a well-trained investigator named Brent Bullock. As he studied the Salt Lake County crimes, talked with investigators, Bullock concluded, Hell, this Laura Amy case is like theirs. It sounds to me like it was the same guy. But Holly and the sheriff's initial investigator stubbornly disputed that. Despite doubts of Laura's parents and some other deputies who had been involved, the Utah Sheriff's Department had taken the position that Laura had been a runaway, a hitchhiker, who had probably been living somewhere or held somewhere for several days between her October 31st disappearance and the time her body was found 27 days later in American Fork Canyon. It was a chance conversation that day in early 1977, sitting in his office discussing the Amy case with Dick Smith, a sheriff's deputy, Bullock uttered a thought. I just wondered if we could ever place Bundy down here in Utah County around that time. Shit, yes, replied Smith. Didn't anybody ever tell you? Tell me what, asked Bullock. Well, way back after Bundy was picked up and charged, I came across a girl who identified Bundy as the guy who had been hanging out over at Brown's Cafe where Laura Amy disappeared. What? Bullock bolted from his chair. No one else in the sheriff's department seemed interested at the time, though, complained Smith, and I was just a lowly deputy. So from Smith's witness, Marin, a girlfriend of Laura Amy, came a startling new version of the case. Marin told Smith and Bullock that an older, good-looking, wavy-haired man who said he was a university student and who drove a Volkswagen had first appeared at the small town of Lehigh one day in September 1974. And if you recall, that is when Ted Bundy moved to Utah. Marin remembered that she and Laura were sitting together in the sunshine with some other teenagers on the grass of a high school. He joined them. When a boy teased Laura by putting some grass down her halter top, the college guy objected. This guy came unglued and told the boy that Laura was his, Marin said. He was really weird, Marin continued. She recalled the man kept reappearing in Lehigh, always looking for Laura. One night at Brown's Cafe on the main street of the small town, Marin recalled, he came in and was sitting there talking and I got up. When Laura said, I'm ready to go, this guy said, you can't. I'm going to rape you. (sighs) Laura just laughed and pushed him away, which I mean, what like literally, what do you do? There are no cell phones. 1974, like some fucking strange ass dude. Just like that's so scary. That's so scary. Marin told her interviewers that she had seen the man again and again, 
once driving his Volkswagen past Marin's house when Laura was there. One night, he came to the house and called Laura outdoors where they held a private conversation. Afterwards, said Marin, Laura was really shook up, but she wouldn't tell me what happened. Laura had vanished the night of October 31st, 1974, and Marin had a totally new version of what happened that night. Way different from the conclusions that came from Utah County Sheriff's Office that they recorded in its case reports. Laura, Marin, and several other teenagers had gathered at Marin's home for a Halloween party. The boys had bought an abundance of vodka, and Laura had had a lot to drink. It was about midnight or so, and she was pretty well drunk, said Marin and she wanted me to walk downtown with her to get some cigarettes. Marin declined. But she said she watched as Laura began to walk in the darkness toward Brown's, the all-night restaurant just one block away. That was the last she saw of Laura. Around three or four o'clock, some of us went to town to look for her, said Marin, but we couldn't find her. When shown a photo lineup, Marin chose the picture of Ted Bundy. Will you take a polygraph test? That, that's a lie detector test to verify what you've told us, asked Bullock. Marin agreed. She passed the test. And today, lie detector tests are inadmissible in court. They are not that accurate ways to detect, like, <laughs> there's no such thing as a lie detector test. <laughs> like, it, it, it does not work. But she did identify him in a photo lineup, and he drove a fucking Volkswagen. A woman employee of Brown's Cafe made a similar identification. And remember, this is taking place in 1977, so I'm going to introduce you to a character who you will meet in the next episode. My, I think, like, up there with one of my favorite investigators. His name is Mike Fisher from Colorado. Fucking OG. He says, you know, said Fisher, there's always been something about that Amy case, that one in particular, that's bothered Theodore. When several case files were given to Bundy in his jail cell under the discovery procedures at Fisher, the first one he went to, and he really tore into it, was the Amy case. Maybe, guessed Fisher, our man departed from his usual M.O. just once. In every other case, the victim became a victim because she had never had any contact with Bundy. Maybe this was the one time where there had been some previous contact with the victim. The time frame was right, the investigators noted. The sightings of the man with the Volkswagen had been in late September and during October 1974, a time of stress for Bundy when he was skipping his law school classes and running up miles on his Volkswagen. For weeks, investigator Fisher tried in vain to get Sheriff Hawley to provide the evidence gathered at the Amy crime scene and autopsy, especially the specimens of head hair and pubic hair taken at the autopsy. In frustration, Fisher called Bullock. Brent, said the investigator at Aspen, we can't get any response from the sheriff there. We keep getting told that it'll be sent over, but we never get the stuff. Mike, replied the Provo investigator, I've got this eerie feeling that the sheriff may have lost the evidence. Oh, Christ, sighed Fisher. That's all we need. In October 1977, Randy Ripplinger, these names, Randy Ripplinger, dropped a bombshell on the station's nightly newscast. The Utah County Sheriff's Department, he reported, had lost or thrown away some or all of the evidence it had collected in the Laura Amy murder investigation less than three years earlier. In his telecast, Ripplinger reported that at least two sources within the Sheriff's Department had confirmed the loss which had occurred while the Sheriff's people were moving into a new office. The Televen newsman quoted one of the sheriff's officers as saying, and I shit you fucking not. To be quite frank, I believe I threw it out. I got tired of moving it around. Literally, go jump into a fucking volcano. What? I don't have words. I don't have words. The next day, an irate Sheriff Hawley, sensing political troubles, because yeah, that's what you have to fucking worry about, confronted the county attorney and his investigator, demanding to know who leaked the information to Ripplinger. Sheriff, Bullock asked, is the evidence lost? The sheriff had a lame reply. It wasn't really evidence. It would have become evidence only when admitted in a trial. But yes, he acknowledged. Laura Amy's hair specimens and other trace evidence collected at the autopsy and crime scene we're gone. <sighs> yeah, so please go pick up uh, The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson because the tea that he spills is just fucking ridiculous. <sighs> ah, 
And, you know, of course, we got to check in with our girl, Liz, see how Liz is doing. So in her book, The Phantom Prince, she says, Around Thanksgiving, a young housewife named Vonnie Stuth vanished from her home in the south end of Seattle. My first reaction was relief. Ted was in Salt Lake City. But almost immediately, the police announced that they had a suspect and the Stuth case was not related to the Ted murders. I was trying to get on with my life as best as I could, but it was hard. For my night class, I was supposed to write a term paper based on research done in newspapers. As I headed for the newspaper reading room in the downtown public library, I knew that I would read the Salt Lake Tribune while I was there. Maybe the crime in Salt Lake had been solved. As I browsed through the Tribune, I came to the first article about the discovery of the body of Melissa Smith, the killing Angie had told me about. The article said that Smith, the daughter of Midvale's police chief, had been missing since the evening of October 18th. That was the day before my dad's birthday, and my dad had spent his birthday deer hunting with Ted. Ted had called me several times on the 18th. He had never been hunting before, and he was excited about it. I started going through the papers more rapidly, looking for more details. I was stunned by what I found next. On November 8th, a young woman had been abducted from a shopping mall by a man posing as a police officer. The woman had escaped from the man's Volkswagen as he tried to handcuff her. The man had struggled with the woman, had managed to get handcuffs on one wrist, and had tried to hit her with a crowbar, but she managed to get away. Later that night, a young woman named Debbie Kent disappeared from a high school parking lot in Bountiful, Utah, 30 miles north of the attack on the first young woman. The police had found a key in the high school lot that fit the handcuffs attached to the first woman's wrist. Get up, I told myself. Get up and go see your bishop. I'm sorry, Liz, but leave God out of this. Just, you should say get up and maybe go to the police again. I don't know, but more power to it. By the time I got to the church, I was detached from the horror I had felt at the library. But when I entered the bishop's office and shook his hand, I came unglued. I had been trying for so long to maintain a calm and poised facade to at least look normal from the outside. Now, I sat in front of my bishop sobbing and wringing my hands. Do people actually wring their hands? Okay. He listened patiently, trying to make sense out of my story as I jumped back and forth. I kept telling him that I thought I was persecuting Ted and I didn't know why. In a calming voice, my bishop began talking to me about decisions. He told me that sometimes he agonized over simple ones and had learned that the only way to get peace of mind was to make a decision, take it to the Lord, and if it was the right decision, I would feel a confirmation in my heart. I believe he's describing uh, trusting your gut. I explained to him how intensely I had prayed to know what was right and what I should do. God gave you free agency. You have to exercise it accordingly, he told me. That's just it, I told him. I am trying to do what's right. I thought I had to go to the police, but when they told me I was wrong, I was still scared. At the library, I felt like claws were tearing my soul to shreds. <laughs> Sorry. Like, um, the only person who has a shredded soul is fucking Ted Bundy because that stupid bitch, a uh, necrophiliac, pedophile, rapist, murderer. So... I think the police should be made aware of what you read in the papers, he said. Give them the burden. They will know whether it bears pursuing. I can't call them again. They've already checked Ted out twice. They think I'm a hysterical nut out to get my boyfriend. Do you want me to call them, he asked. Relief swept over me. I gave him Hergschmeyer's number and went home to start my nightly ritual of drinking myself to sleep. Oh, poor Liz. I knew the bishop would be disappointed if he could see me, but what else could I do? I mean, you could use that free agency he just told you about, but okay. While I was having my first drink, I got out a calendar and looked at the date of the attempted abduction by the man in the Volkswagen, November 8th, a Friday. That was the day my parents had left Seattle to go home. Ted had called me late that night. I had tried to reach out to him earlier, but there was no answer. I had fallen asleep on the couch, and when he called, I had a hard time waking up. He had gotten impatient with me and almost hung up. I kept saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then when he waited, I had nothing to say. He said to call him in the morning. It was about 11 p.m. here, so it would have been midnight in Utah. That was almost proof that he hadn't been out abducting women that night, wasn't it? Liz, make that make sense. Make that make sense. There are 24 hours in a day. Just because he called you at midnight doesn't, like, uh, no, Liz. Anyway. My bishop called me at work the next morning. <laughs> Let her do her job. 
He had told Hergsmeyer how upset I was by what I read in the Salt Lake papers and suggested that authorities in Utah be contacted. Hergsmeyer agreed to call Utah and let me know. Time dragged on. My bishop called a second time and there was still no word. At last, I called Hergsmeyer myself. He told me that people in King County had been so busy killing each other off that he hadn't had time to call Salt Lake City. Christmas was coming and I was going home to Utah as usual. I could no longer get a whole night's sleep. I would wake up about two or three in the morning and toss and turn until the sun came up. I sometimes wondered if I was possessed. As the sleepless nights stacked up, my mental state got worse. I was afraid I would be murdered in Utah. I could visualize Ted finding out that I knew the truth. He will murder me, I thought, but first he will murder Molly in front of me and then my mother and father. Okay, so <laughs> here's the thing. Um, just some advice. Um, if you are concerned about your partner or anyone, uh, for that matter, murdering you, but before they murder you, they murder your child and parents in front of you, maybe you should no longer associate with that person. That sounds like it would be a good idea. I don't know. You know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not an investigator, but just as a human being living in the shithole realm, planet Earth, um, maybe don't fuck with people who you think might be murderers. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Also, no tea, Liz, but uh, everyone knows that if someone is murdered, the first people that they look at is like <laughs> your partner and he's at least smart enough to not kill you because it will be linked right back to him, which then would be linked to all of his other victims. Anyway, so Liz continues. She says, During one awful night, I decided that I would call my dad. He had friends on various police forces. Maybe he could help me. I waited until it was 6 a.m. in Utah. Maybe he would be up by then. His groggy voice told me he'd been asleep. Hello, Dad? This is Liz. I need help. I'm scared that maybe Ted's involved in those murders in Utah. I wondered if maybe you could discreetly contact someone on the police force and they could check him out. There was total silence on the other end of the line. I thought maybe he'd gone back to sleep. But then, sounding absolutely appalled, he asked me why. Why would I think such a thing? I fumbled to explain. He listened, and when I was through, there was another long silence. You have to be absolutely certain before you contact the police, he said. You would ruin his career if you were mistaken. Are you sure? Okay, fuck his career. Women are getting murdered. Now I see why Liz behaves the way she did, because she was also worried about his career. Fuck his career. Fuck his career, yo. Like, no tea, but guess what? If he's actually innocent, they'll check him out, and it'll be like, oh, there was nothing about it, but apparently trash doesn't fall far from the garbage heap with this line of reasoning. So anyway, when I said no, he declined to get involved and we hung up. I got out of bed and plugged in the Christmas tree lights. I wrapped myself up in the afghan my mom had made for me. I sat in the rocking chair that had been my grandma's and stared at the lights on the tree. <sighs> Liz, uh... <laughs> what the fuck is going on? <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Uh, we did it. We're done. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes come out every week on Friday. And next week, we move over to Colorado. Ted Bundy's just still traveling, being a stupid bitch. But in Colorado, we get some ski resorts, we get doctor's conventions, and we get Mike Fisher. He is so fucking funny and he really hates Ted Bundy, which I vibe with heavily. We also get reintroduced to Dr. Robert Keppel because he discovers a second gravesite. It's not great. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Please follow at True Crime Aficionados on Instagram. You can follow me on TikTok at Misha Iman. It is not true crime related, just me being cute with coffee and my kitten. Speaking of my kitten, Stay tuned for her wonderful, purifying purrs at the end of this episode. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, share, all of that jazz. Send me your thoughts, your concerns, your anecdotes. Everything at truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I can't believe this is my job. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And remember, keep your head on a swivel. Bye.
Oh, don't, don't, don't do that, Mama. Hehehehe. <laughs> <laughs> 